0: Welcome to the Invisible India Podcast. I'm Jessica
1: and I'm Abhishek. We are a cross-cultural couple doing life in India, exploring the lesser-known mysteries of Indian culture,
0: interviewing fascinating figures who have chartered new territories, and sharing life as we raise our multicultural family amongst the complexities of modern Indian life. Shefa Sikder with me. She works with a large NGO in Bihar, India. She has worked overseas in Bangladesh and India and has experience with gender issues and reproductive health. And today's topic is gender violence, specifically talking about in India and with Indian population. And I really wanted to talk about this today because it is it's it is a tough issue for sure, but uh, Shaifa is a person with, with a lot of grace and a lot of um, compassion and the know-how to navigate these issues, but also really has a, a love for the people of India. I have really enjoyed getting to know her and seeing that she really genuinely cares about the people here she's not just another person who's like in and out on an assignment working with an NGO so I wanted to get her perspective because she's a person that is is capable of sharing from her head and her heart and I thought that you would all want to hear from her so Shiva, can you tell us a little bit about yourself personally and then a little bit about like why you took this assignment in Bihar?
1: Sure. So hi, everybody. This is Shafa. I'm really excited to be on the episode today. Um, as Jessica mentioned, I work in Patna in Bihar with an NGO here. And uh, I moved here because I really wanted to be in the field. I have a public health background, so I studied public health in graduate school. And I'm from Bangladesh, so I've always uh, wanted to get closer to the issues. I spent a few years, about five years, working in Bangladesh. And um, when this project came up, I was really excited. It was a good chance to be on the ground and, like Jessica said, really get into the weeds with people who care about how things are going here.
0: And you are in the weeds for sure. Just the way way I've seen you work. I know gender issues really get under your skin and it's, you live and breathe and eat and sleep (laughs) thinking about these things. So, so if you could kind of just outline for us, where does, India as general or South Asia in general fall on the spectrum of like how bad things are with gender violence and how do you measure those things and why is it important to address these issues? Sure. So
1: uh, when we talk about violence against women or uh, gender-based violence, some forms are really extreme so the really extreme cases you see in the news where sexual assault happens and it's very public those of us who live in Bihar we all saw this Muzaffarpur scandal there's a shelter home scandal of short stay homes for minors it's oh, really were- terrible <laughs> where there was widespread corruption and basically assault of minors. So it's a slightly different topic. It's child sexual assault, but a form of violence against girls. And so, you know, we've seen all those extreme media forms, and um, those are some of the more visible forms of violence. When we talk about violence against women, it's a spectrum. So you have kind of those extreme forms of exploitation, sexual or physical violence. But then there's also emotional and economic violence. So emotional violence is more like emotional abuse, psychological abuse, yelling, insulting, uh, which can happen in person or by phone. A lot of different ways that it's documented. Economic violence is slightly different. Economic violence is about withholding resources, using that kind of power over one person or another. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to. It's this violence is essentially about power. It's about um, using some kind of power that people have over another person, and this happens to be against women. When we're saying, how does the problem look in India? So violence against women is actually a problem everywhere. Every country in the world, the forms of it are different. So there's more extreme forms in some cases. When we think about the U.S. or South Africa, which are easily the most prosperous countries on their continent, rates of rape are actually higher in those countries compared to other countries. In Bihar, where economic Issues are a stressor, so the economy is weaker here. A lot of people have money stresses, a lot of different issues. That might be a driver of some of the violence. That's what the data is showing us. So that manifests in the kinds of violence that we see. In Bangladesh, um, acid attacks were a big problem. And so um, until recently, the proportion of women who were kind of scorned and then you know burned with acid was actually pretty high. And those are just kind of some of the physical forms of it. Of course, there's other forms as well, emotional harassment. Dowry is still a big cause of violence against women in South Asia. So that's one that's kind of particular to this subcontinent. We see it in other, we see different forms in other continents. But dowry, of course, is the price that a family often has to pay for someone to accept their daughter in marriage. So those forms are still there.
0: As you're just talking about this, it just makes me think these are such deep-seated issues. And the issue, I feel, is, is convincing people that these are actually wrong. In, here in India, withholding resources, that is so common. I mean, for, for, a, for a man to be the one that has total control of the money, to be the one that has control of everything in the household, giving the wife domain over basically the kitchen and the ki- children's studies in school is pretty much the cultural norm. Mm-hmm. Women who have power influence in other areas of the household is a minority. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about making this cultural shift? I mean, that's, I guess, the question that we're all asking mm-hmm. and probably what you've been asking and in your organization as well how in the world do you make this cultural shift and helping people to realize we're not trying to just impose Western values, Mm -hmm. values of, um, you know, having a love marriage and, you know, being able to kind of do what you want because you're not part of the extended family. You know, when you talk about some of these issues, it's like you can say, oh, dowry is really an unjust kind of practice, but people will say, well, that's just the way we do it here. You know, whether Mm -hmm. it's a middle-class person or Mm -hmm. a more wealthy person, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the way it is. This is part of Indian culture. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that makes us unique. And so how do you (laughs) discuss that without trying to cause upheaval Mm -hmm. in people's notion of holding on to Indian culture?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one, Jessica. Obviously, yeah. you've spent a lot of time in this culture. Well, I think the first point is, you know, it's it's not a class issue and it's not a West and East thing. Because like, like I mentioned, violence against women happens everywhere. So um, we have a lot of data now. So even middle-class families, upper-class families, as you would say, like emotional violence is quite common. Even physical violence, and sometimes it's even more stigmatized because people might assume it's a poor person's issue. So they might be less willing to talk about oh, yeah.
0: it. Yeah, I, I think people definitely assume it's a poor person's issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, my, mm-hmm. my maid, you know, her husband beat her up, and this. Mm-hmm. It might be more public because they live in closer quarters mm-hmm. with other people. Whereas if you're in a larger home, and your husband beats you up or or is screaming at you or whatever the case is or withholding resources from you you know you can keep that more quiet because mm-hmm. you don't live in close community just mm-hmm break it in there to share my observation but yeah yeah yeah,
1: absolutely absolutely so like it's it's funny but the data actually indicates it it cuts across class it cuts across income it cuts across geography Mm. and so like a lot of the data shows when women start earning money when they become more empowered that empowerment causes a lot of issues in the power dynamics in couples and so we have a lot of data over time showing that there are sometimes associated changes in violence now, there is, there is some normalization over time, but it's not just a, a poor people's issue. I think the other thing about norms, I mean, when something is stigmatized or it's kind of you don't want to talk about it or you do talk about it. I was just in the field last week and we were doing a focus group discussion with health workers. And so one of the health workers, you know, very casually Said that her husband beats her up because she's talking to other couples about health services and you know everyone laughed like it was the most normal casual everyday thing in the world and i think well, things like that happen quite a bit. There are a few things we mentioned and you know, we were asking about violence, so a lot of things came up. It's just kind of accepted and, and that's kind of your second point. The issue is kind of a lot deeper. It's actually about do people think women and girls are equal? Do you actually do people actually think that women and men have equal status? Like you were asking how do you how do you address that without shaking the balance? I think um, what the data shows us and what our programs are trying to work with, um, a lot of people do think that men and women should be equal. And it's not that those people are all in the West. And it's not that those people are all not brown. There are a lot of champions within villages. There's a lot of men who support women to be equal. There's a lot of people in different parts of the system who realize that these things need to change. The fact that harassment of women, you know, dowry harassment, violence, physical violence is normal is not okay with a lot of people. And so I think the issue is with those people being the ones in power so are those people the ones that are actually making differences are those heads of mukias or like local governance structures are they the heads of our government are they the people who are making powerful decisions who control money and control resources a lot of them are which is why we're doing this project but I think it comes down to who makes the choice
0: so basically one of the the main challenges is getting those who are in power to actually acknowledge these things as as issues, helping them to take the blinders off. And one thing that I find that's really interesting is with some of these issues, you know, I think uh, you would assume that it's, oh, it's all the men who are just kind of holding the power and wanting things to be that way. But women here are really the cultural key holders, I think, in many ways, and especially with religious heritage and passing that on to your children. In many ways, women are the ones that are inciting or encouraging these types of oppression against other women. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's an incorrect assumption that I had mm-hmm. that, oh, it was all the men that were just power hungry and treating women poorly. But really, it can be women as well. And I think I'm not directly speaking against the um, joint family system because I think it has a lot of merits. Mm-hmm. But when you have generations of this kind of pattern, you know, Saspahu relationship, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship, where you're trying to uphold the values of Indian culture, the values of a joint family, the values of what your role is in the family, and kind of teaching the daughter-in-law what those expectations should be. In a lot of these culturally normalized oppressive behaviors... We would assume that yeah, it's the it's the father or it's the husband who's new, But actually, a lot of times it's the mother-in-law. In many of the cases that I've seen, whether that's pressure from the outside, from what others are going to say, or just from like what is society going to say? This whole like mm-hmm. you know, samaj gyaka kahenge, log gyaka kahenge. This is you know, what are people going to say? I think that's mm-hmm. just the fear of what society is going to think. Of me as a mother-in-law, of me as a good Indian, as me mm-hmm. as you know, at least in the in the Hindu families of upholding my dharam, upholding my family values. This is a huge obstacle, but also opportunity, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. Um, to break those generational patterns mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what one would. Basically, call like normalized oppression or normalized violence mm-hmm. under the under the hood of carrying on our cultural heritage.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, it's not so much like men or women are yeah. the ones who are carrying this out. It's more, I think, it's more about the people in power. So traditionally, a lot of power structures we've seen maybe haven't been so responsive, and historically, most people in power have been men. But that doesn't mean that men or women are necessarily supporters, champions, or the ones perpetrating it. I think that's one of the reasons both of us moved here, because people aren't so black and white, you know? You can say things like the poorest state in India or Mm -hmm. the most conservative state in India, but you realize pretty quickly that... A lot of these are just kind of labels, you know? Oh, yeah. People people subvert and, like, they go between all these things. And some people are surprisingly stalwart and pretty strong. Some of the strongest people I've met are women in Bihar who will stand up for themselves no matter what. And a lot of men, too. And so I don't think, I don't think it's that progressive people are necessarily geographically distributed. You know, there's a lot of progressive people here. And I think there's a lot of Indian traditional families who agree that people should have equality. And if that doesn't match the norms or the history, I mean, there are a lot of people who who want to change it. At the same time, like you said, there's some problematic issues with, historically, women have, have been excluded from power or access. Sometimes that's built into the very traditions and the very bylaws of a society. And so those things have also changed. Um, Now we're in a place where we have a lot more laws and policies and there's an overall awareness that there should be a move towards equality. So People know, you know, there's at least the knowledge that that has to be there. Whether that changes individual behavior is another thing, but societal pressure is also changing. Doesn't mean it's not, it's not crushing and it can't be debilitating for a lot of people. The world has changed. In fact, our data in Bihar shows us. I think we all used to think that mothers-in-law were so, you know, this kind of thing you couldn't move beyond if you wanted to change anything in the household. And that's how our programs were actually designed. But our recent data, All across Bihar shows us that when we get into really tricky issues like reproductive health, how many kids someone wants to have, how much autonomy they have over the reproductive health, behavior, any choices they make, the mother-in-law basically is not that important. It comes down to the husband. We were focusing on younger couples. If the husband had decided that he wanted to wait to have children or he only wanted, you know, fewer children or he only um, wanted to wait a certain number of years, then that Wish was respected by everyone. Now, of course, now we're talking about a power difference between men and women. You know, the men decides the, the wife's choice is essentially irrelevant if it doesn't match with the husband's choices. Yeah. But what our data showed us that it wasn't the mother in law. If the husband had agreed, it didn't really matter what the mother in law said. This was about reproductive health. And we looked at other things like, can the woman go out of the house? Mm. You know, can she go to the market? Can she do like these other things? And the mother-in-law became very important. So it's a little bit different.
0: So one of the things we're talking about is society is changing. What's your opinion about the campaigns in Bollywood and some of the new movies that have come out that have been Aspirational, you know, women's empowerment, looking at moves like Dungal and Calm and you're celebrating some of these women that went way outside the boundaries of what's culturally normal and became these cultural heroes in the sports field. I mean, do you think this is helping? Do you think that there needs to be more of this? What are the things that are on a societal level really mm-hmm. going to make an impact?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's great. I I think that part of how this problem gets tackled is the people who are in power change. And so that's also the face of power. You know, I think for those of us who grew up in America, like you and I did, we've always seen white men in power. And that's what the face of power looks like. So when you start to hear stories of other people, you know, people who aren't white, people who aren't men that creates some power. So I think it's really important in creating that space. Bollywood movies have historically been, you know, a huge part of the psyche here, a huge part of the culture. And um, I think when you're popularizing the empowerment of women, you know, that's that's great.
0: Let's, let's look at, I just want to ask, like what are some of the programs or some of the big changes that we have seen mm-hmm. uh, in your line of work and in your sphere of, Of work which is larger than what most of us have visibility uh, to understand and to see what's happening on the programmatic or even government level or our larger NGO level Um, so what are some of the programs or things that you've seen that have worked and we've seen improvements
1: yeah, I mean, that's one of the good things about working in this uh, area now. We, we've we seen a few things work, which which I think is really encouraging. One is, um, you know, I mentioned I'm from Bangladesh, where rates of violence against women are as high as anywhere else. And one form of violence that was particularly troubling was um, burns, so burns by acid. So um, in Bangladesh, I would think it was the highest in the world proportion of violence victims who were burn victims. And um, since then, Bangladesh has banned The wholesale of acid, and that's been something that's particularly done to control this kind of violence. And we've seen the proportions plummet, so it seems highly effective. Um, I was just visiting the burns unit of the medical college in the capital last week, and they were saying that, you know, ten years ago, ninety percent of their patients were acid victims, and now, you know, it's changed. Doesn't mean other things aren't happening, but um, acid attacks are particularly disfiguring and debilitating yeah. form of violence. So I think you know that's a very positive policy direction that a country took that had a big impact. Just one example. And then attitude change. You know, I think sometimes people tend to think like, okay, let's just focus on these laws and things because documents are easier to change than people's minds. Mm -hmm. But actually, we have a lot of experience working on attitude change and measuring it and looking at it among different communities and how does it work over time. And so that's probably the most exciting part of the program we're working on. Um, We're building on a lot of lessons and a lot of data. So... We know that you know it has to happen over time. There has to be a lot of reflection, um, and the power structures have to be involved. So, if you're talking to a woman who's at the bottom of a system, you know she's not going to be able to change the whole system. But you have to involve people who are responsible for making decisions about her time. So, for example, um, if you're working with health workers, which we are. Uh, It's important to also include their supervisors and also make sure that they understand the importance and accountable for the kinds of programs that we're looking at. And that has to be sustained over time. So that's a big area we work in.
0: Yeah, when you say things like dowry and acid attack and child marriage and things that are caste discrimination and things that are problems in India, we demonize those issues. Mm -hmm. When we have just as many issues and you're sharing the statistics that we have just as much of a problem Mm -hmm. in western society and i think that's that's even a global problem that people in india think that the west has it all figured out in in this area or women can do whatever they want or Mm -hmm. whatever And we here, you know, are not able to do this, that, and the other thing. But people are often content in that, that, you know, I'm not a Westerner. I don't need to do all this crazy, don't need to all have all this independence. And I think that's a problem that at least, at least something that I had to overcome that thinking that because women don't have all the independence or opportunities that I have, that they must be dreadfully, dreadfully unhappy. And that's not true. So I think that was one thing that I had to change in my perspective or, or realize in my pers- my own biases and i think what you're saying about it being a global issue is is really important for westerners us as westerners to understand that we can't demonize places like India, Bangladesh, China for the issues that they have and not look at our own issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what you're talking about, Jessica, is essentially, do you have a choice? So like, um, not what does it look like? Are you someone who shops on your own? or are you not someone who shops on your own? Or do you wear a hijab? Do you not wear a hijab? But essentially, did you have the choice? Did you have the choice to do what you wanted to do? And of course, that ends up looking differently for people. And um, I don't think it's more here. It's easier to assume, you know, because before you live in India, you're like, oh, everyone's like that in India. And then when you come (laughs) to India, you're like, oh, everyone's like that in Bihar. And then you realize, like, it's so different. You know, some of the most fundamental feminists I've met are from here. Some of them are men, you know, and it's people aren't always what they seem or what you think that they are. And this conversation we're having, like, I had this with someone who lives in Paris you know and they were talking about how isolated and how few choices they had in a very uh, difficult situation and this is in a cultural capital of Europe right but i do think some some places of the world are more the institutions are weaker than others and so maybe there's fewer places you go maybe mm-hmm. there's fewer choices you have so possibly you know that's kind of different i see
0: yeah that does make sense where a place where you feel maybe you have less influence to make changes in policy but yeah I hear I hear what you're saying about the the institutions being not as strong or are not as many support systems in place that are outside of your immediate family I think here one of the beauties and the strengths of Indian culture I mean I have, I've been reflecting on this lately that a lot of things about Indian culture are nearly perfect as far as the way that it's supposed to <laughs> roll. If you fulfill your duties in the family the way you're supposed to, it should be a perfect ideal system. And as I've been thinking about all of these things, and don't call me a heretic here for anything, but, you know, perfect capitalism would be a perf- perfect socialism, perfect libertarianism. In their perfect states, they're all great, But that's not the reality we live in. Mm -hmm. And things are broken and things are messed up and things aren't perfectly aligned. So as I look at Indian culture, you know, if everyone fulfilled their role perfectly without question, it would be a great, perfect society and pattern for the world. We're not looking at who's losing out and what's the choice supposed to be and personal freedom and Mm -hmm. the ability to be mobile, the ability to make choices based on... Not just what you think other people want from you, or what you think is important for your culture, for your country. These are all obstacles or or things that might prevent us from being able to make the choices that we need to in life,
1: well, because you're speaking on a personal note, like yeah. I think um I think also for me, like um, you know, like I said, it was about choice. So you know, I chose to focus on this issue here. Okay. And, um, you know, it's it's a problem everywhere. And I think in the U.S. it, it actually bothers me particularly. It bothers me in a particularly rough way because, um, you know, we have the data that women are more educated. On average, women actually have more education than men. And we can use similar data from continents where they're paid equally and see that they're actually more productive members of society. In the recession, we had a lot more female headed households than men. so. It's not, I don't think, I think the fact that women make less than men is a structural issue. I think the fact that we've never had a female president in 200 some odd years is just a discrimination issue. And I don't even think it's the worst kind of discrimination we have. But it bothers me that in a country where we think we've gotten it right... We have so many forms of it remaining. And it bothered me so much that, like, you know, I, I felt like there are some standards that I have for myself. I, I deserve better, you know? I, I don't want to be in a country that treats me like that. Not when I'm paying 40% of my income
0: for the government. <laughs> so it's <laughs> one reason I care. I can relate. On a personal level, I find just to share from my own Perspective of being a married person, married to an Indian, to someone from here with two children. There are definitely different expectations. And I've, there's the the independence and the opportunities that I had in the U.S. was as wide as you could consider. Mm -hmm. The opportunities and the independence that I have in this situation is a smaller circle. However, I'm able to go deeper into some of these responsibilities or roles that I'm expected to do. Again, I'm blessed that I have a really wonderful family and wonderful in-laws and husband. So it's not, I'm in a different situation than a lot of people, but I have felt a difference. And I think that we take that smaller um, circle and we look at it as oppression, which is not always oppression but that is just a personal note that I've I've learned I've had to learn how to live just in a different in a different sphere in a different and then just had to learn how to be more content in a place where I have less independence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe less choice mm-hmm. and I found a lot of freedom in that not having unlimited choices and I think sometimes having unlimited choices can be a bit paralyzing. (laughs) But I am happy to see that women here are having more choice. Women here are having, especially in in, in career Mm -hmm. fields, in um, being able to have later marriage age, having more control over their fertility and their health and things like that. There's so many positive changes that are taking place. Absolutely. And that is really encouraging to me.
1: You're asking what can we do? And so the solution is at a few levels. It's what, it's what do you think? What do you think other people think? What do other people think about what you're doing? You know, it's all these levels. And so um, I think what's nice is both we have more data and we have more of those things in place. So for example, we know that laws and punishments for violating certain principles are necessary. We know those have to be in place. They're not at all sufficient. So that's one component, and a lot of that is there. India has made huge progress in the legal scene when you look at different aspects of violence against women. So I think that's hugely celebrated.
0: Can I ask a question Mm -hmm. really quick? So when you're talking about the data that you have, we're talking about the laws that have changed. Do you think that it's actually gotten worse Do you think that it's gotten better or do you think that it's just now people are reporting Mm -hmm. that we have data because there are actually laws in place now that are being violated, which Mm -hmm. are becoming cases? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Do we just know more about it now?
1: We know more about it, which like, as a scientist, that's it makes it, makes it easier to know where we are. So it, violence against women has always been a problem. And documentation has been an issue. And especially because it's so stigmatized and it's so sensitive, underreporting will always be a problem. So almost always survey data is going to underestimate what the actual burden is. However, this is where, you're talking about media, this is where we're in a different place. So every advocate I've talked to they've talked about how we're not where we were 10 years ago you know in South Asia when we didn't have a lot of these laws in place or there wasn't as much media attention you know now whenever there's a rape case it's all over the news I won't necessarily say it's covered well but it's covered you know it's front page news yeah. and like it's it's kind of seen as something that people uh, are quite mad about yeah, and shocked by and super. say it shouldn't be happening so that's a different situation we might never know what it was before but the point more is that we know that it's been happening in some societies including america it's every one in two women and so um as as institutions we have a responsibility to have a response that makes sense And I think what gives me um, a lot of hope working in this area is, you know, there's so much more evidence now. A lot of things have happened globally that tell us in every, whether you're talking about police, health system, um, social support for women, these are the things we can do that actually work. In India, there's been a lot of work. A lot of other states have gone pretty far with their response programs. So there's a lot we can build on.
0: So you as a professional NGO worker, someone who's been delved in this field for a long time, you have access to people who are working in so many levels, and you have direct influence in people's lives. What would be your recommendation for people who want to do something, but they're not sure what to do? So let's start with, what about uh, maybe people who are Indian and who are living here or who are a part of, maybe who they're NRIs. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're here. What are things that they can do to combat this issue.
1: I mean, I think being aware goes a long way. I think um, I think my advice would almost be the same for everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, this is such a pervasive issue, and we haven't even talked about, I mean, I'm talking about violence, but then there's also harassment. And so it comes down to our men and women being treated equally. It's an issue everywhere. But if you're someone who's working in India or anywhere else, I can guarantee you, um, if you're a supervisor, if you're head of a department, if you're in a big organization, Organization, I can guarantee you there are harassment and you know issues, other issues going on because we don't live in equal societies anywhere. Um, in fact, since I started working on this project, you know, a lot of people in and um, that I know professionally have come up to me and mentioned things that you know you wouldn't expect in certain places, not even um, outside of India. You know, I think being aware is a big is a big thing. I think people—it's a tricky issue because it's not a women against men issue. It's really an equality yeah, issue. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. yeah, and so I think when it's when it's perceived as a women against men issue, there's a there's an instant tendency to be protective, and that's not really. Helpful, and it's not really gonna get us anywhere because the point is if you're in living in the modern world and you're a woman or a man working, you're probably not being treated equally. And if you're in a position of power, I think it's good to at least be open to the fact that there might be pay discrimination, there might be disparaging comments, there might be people who feel like they're in a hostile work environment. As I mentioned, this isn't just a poor people or a middle income or like a low income issue, it actually affects everybody. And so, you know, I think be open to it, be someone that people can talk to. Um, Since I've been here, I'm a woman, I mean, I'm Bangladeshi, but I'm also American. So I'm semi-foreign and I'm in a semi-senior position. So I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me just because being a woman in a somewhat leadership position is revolutionary here. And to be honest, it's revolutionary in the US as well. It's, it's still quite rare when we look at the number of female leaders we've had. Just, just be aware that power dynamics are not equal. Be open to it. That's my general advice for everybody. For people who really want to get into um, more things, like I said, there's a lot more evidence we have now on what works. Um, there's some good public health responses. India has done some wonderful work. If you're in India, there's an organization called SEHAT C-E-H-A-T. They've got the most rigorous evidence on like a health systems response. Overall, if you're interested in other areas, um, WHO and UNFPA have some of the best resources on what works.
0: Thank you so much for sharing about that. That's really great advice. And I think that it's really easy to, we could run off a whole list of organizations that we are in touch with that we work for that we support that we see doing great work which I might include some of those in the show notes but I think what you said is so much more poignant and personal like let's look at our own lives because this is not just an issue in India this is an issue globally what do I need to change in my sphere of influence what can I change in myself You know, as our great leader Gandhiji said, be the change you want to see in the world. And that's so cliche and it's overused and I'm using it again, (laughs) but it's true. You know, it's due to other people that you would want to be done to you. Think personally about these things. Think closely in your own sphere of influence. You You don't have to do a huge thing to really make an impact. So I think that's, excellent advice. So I'm just really thankful for your perspective. I'm thankful that we have people like you that are both broadly informed about these issues and laser focused on things that are in many ways being ignored by society or by the government or whatever it may be thankful to be your friend and just to learn from you. And this has been a really enlightening conversation. It's not an easy conversation, but it's, it's a conversation we need to have. And it's a conversation that we need to, to spread. And...
1: Thank you, Jessica. It's really fun to be on this podcast, and uh, I listened to all the podcasts on my last vacation, uh-huh. and I think it's really, it's really nice. Like this, it's a nice niche. This voice is really unique. I think for those of us who've been in and out of so many cultures, it really hit a few tones. And I like what you said in one of your earlier podcasts about being comfortable in your own skin and learning how to do that. It's, you know, it's a learning process, but. Um, Being able to talk about this with people who I know, you know, are so embedded in the culture also helps me a lot. So thank you.
0: Sure. Thank you so much. So as our listeners, if you want to comment or connect with us in different ways about this topic, we'd love to hear from you.